So this is the uh, Sat Yoga Ashram's first official contemplation weekend, I'm told. And uh, <laughs> I put the dash in there just to make it more clear that it refers indeed to quantum physics. But it is a continuation of what has been the core activity of all religions, contemplation. The act of a, a serious Christian is the contemplation of God, contemplative prayer. It's called the highest form of prayer. It corresponds to the yogic term dhyana. And dhyana is the penultimate phase of classical yoga. The final phase is samadhi, which goes beyond the contemplation of God consciousness to unification, merging fully into the realization of the one self without remainder. So the contemplation of the oneself has been the core activity of monks and of uh, Sufi mystics and Taoists and Buddhists and Hindus and alchemists and uh, Kabbalists, all the esoteric traditions of the perennial philosophy for thousands of years. And we are continuing that but we want to update the terminology because an extraordinary emergence within the field of science in the last hundred or so years, which refer, is referred to as quantum physics, has completely changed the nature of human understanding that puts it once again in alignment with the ancient traditions and yet actually gives more insight if we understand quantum physics and its implications even than we were able to get from the ancient teachings because we are now removed from the context in which those ancient teachings were developed and they were developed when the ego in its current form was not yet existent. And this is what makes the ancient teachings in their original form less digestible to the postmodern consciousness. But quantum physics is entirely digestible, even though the power system has chose to allow as little as possible of quantum understanding to be trickled down into the educational system and society at large, but more and more popular books with a clear understanding of its implications are being published and speakers uh, who are physicists and who have uh, understood accurately those implications beginning with Max Planck himself, the founder of quantum physics, back in the early 1900s, recognized that the, the first major implication of quantum physics is that we can no longer accept the 
philosophical paradigm of materialism. Materialism developed in the modern age gradually from the 17th century as the world was coming out of the medieval period and philosophy in the West, at least Western Europe, had been limited to the scholastic uh, works of Aquinas and others who were uh, elucidating the implications of the Bible and uh, the miracles of Christ and that sort of thing and trying to uh, come up with a philosophy entirely based on those texts. But a breakthrough happened in, uh, in the field of philosophy that became most, uh, let's say, effective with uh, the work of René Descartes, who began his philosophy with no reference at all to the New Testament or the Old or to religion per se, and began with the recognition that there seemed to be two types of elements to reality, two types of um, substances or res, uh, to use the, the Latin. There was res extensa, which is stuff that's extended, things that are extended in space and time, and res cogitans, or cogitans if you prefer, that uh, thing which is, we think in our head, that is not extended in space or time, but is able to think. But in this division between uh, matter, the extended stuff, and the thinking stuff, uh, which for the first time had been separated. Before that, in the medieval uh, worldview, it was understood that everything was alive with spirit. It was a panentheistic approach. Everything is, uh, is alive and conscious. The stars are conscious the moon, the sun, and that's why astrology made sense in, in that uh, context. And animals, the word comes from anima, the soul, they had souls, they are ensouled beings. Even the plants are, were considered conscious, and they are, of course. But all of that came to an end very gradually with the Cartesian approach. And uh, Descartes, however, still re realized that something was required to bridge the gap between res extensa and res cogitans, and for that he uh, used the figure of God who, from whom both of these types of things derive. But as the modern age developed, the seeming need for God as the organizer of the relationship between these two types of things became less necessary and the scientific community gradually abandoned the, the theory now of God's existence and we were left with beings who can think about a world that is entirely material without soul, without spirit, uh, a dead world. And the only thing that was seemingly alive in that world was non-physical. And that soon then got overturned when the modern materialism said, uh, the thinking thing is not immaterial, 
it's actually the brain itself, which is through its neuronal, uh, chemical, electrical activity producing consciousness. And so, voila, now there is only uh, res extensa. Even consciousness itself is simply an illusion created by an extended uh, cerebrum. So, uh, it became a, a soulless, uh, empty world, and then that was, uh, of course, supplemented by Darwinism, saying it was all random chance and uh, no meaning whatsoever to the whole thing. And, uh, and then, of course, pretty soon it became quite famous with Nietzsche's cry that God is dead, that uh, whatever kind of uh, metaphysics that one wanted to entertain was also necessarily an illusion. There's only matter in motion, and that brought in, of course, Karl Marx overturning Hegel and declaring that uh, dialectical materialism was the only approach to life that made sense. And, of course, uh, whether one was within a communist uh, camp or a capitalist camp, both were materialist equally. They were uh, slightly different versions of the same metaphysical or non-metaphysical, anti-metaphysical position. Well, all of that was fine so long as physics uh, was held to the Newtonian paradigm. And with Newton, of course, there was still God, but he was the famous watchmaker who wound the whole thing up and then went on vacation and was unnecessary. So uh, once uh, the materialists got in there, of course, they still had to figure out how the clock got wound up, but they made up something called the Big Bang. And uh, with that free miracle, as McKenna says, they, from then on, they could use cause and effect without requiring any intervention from any divine essence. But uh, things did not hold uh, together uh, very long. It, it, was, uh, it was back in 1905 with, uh, with both Einstein and Max Planck and, and uh, the work uh, of uh, Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell and uh, later on Nikola Tesla that the uh, quantum paradigm uh, was shifted, uh, shifted the, the possibility of holding that materialist uh, uh, belief system any longer. So this is an introductory weekend, so I'm not going to go very deeply into quantum physics, or we'll never get to meditate, and so I'm going to try to give a nutshell version of it, even though uh, in our longer retreats we are going to go ever more deeply into uh, the scientific side of, uh, of this, because quantum physics is actually a theory of consciousness and of how consciousness manifests the illusion of a universe. And again, without attempting to go, uh, to go too deeply, what quantum physics discovered about the nature of reality at the level of subatomic, I won't even call them particles, most people do, but they are not particles. What, what he discovered in the subatomic realm, 
Planck and then Niels Bohr and Schrodinger and Werner Heisenberg, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you're all familiar uh, with the, the great physicists of the 20th century. What was discovered is that um, when a so-called particle, whether an electron or a proton or a photon, is not being observed, it does not exist. When it's not observed by a human being, who were the physicists measuring these things, and when they measured the what was apparently a wave, uh, it would seem to appear suddenly as if it were a particle. But then, when the physicist would turn his back, it became again a wave. And this apparent wave-particle duality became the great Zen koan of physics. That koan has had a number of various types of answers to try to explain it. But I think that the real uh, bottom line uh, takeaway for our purposes is this. The real nature of what is observed at this subatomic level is that of the wave function. Okay? Not only is, let's take the electron as a, a sample type of uh, apparent particle, not only is the electron uh, a wave, but that wave cannot be located and it cannot be localized when it is not being uh, directly observed. It, it, it is a, a swarm of potentialities, but it cannot be limited to where it might be found in space or time once the effort of observation is being made. So the wave function is primary and the apparent appearance of something that seems like it's physical is secondary and is the result of the intention of consciousness to find a particle. This is the key point. If there is no intention to find a particle, then the physicist can actually be looking at the wave function and it won't change into a particle. But it's the intention. It's not simply the observation, but the observation with the intention of finding and measuring the momentum and position of a particle, which remains forever uncertain, according to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You cannot find both. And so it remains an elusive mystery that is inherent to reality, not a problem that our apparatuses aren't uh, sufficiently refined to discover this. It's a part of the nature of reality, that reality is potential, not actual, in its real nature. And that it is willing to condescend to appear as an observer wants it to appear but only for so long as that observer is actually interested in the appearance, and then it goes back to what it really is, which is incorporeal, non-physical, non-material potency, but not actuality. This is very important. 
Now, the physicists for a long time tried to maintain a divorce between what happens at the subatomic level and what happens at the level that our sense data comes in at. And so for a long time, this level of interaction of the world was considered the classical realm and the microscopic was the quantum realm. And they thought they could maintain uh, the illusion that different laws apply here. The Newtonian paradigm still applies and you know, quantum only applies at the small level. Not true. They can no longer maintain that delusion. And that means that the same quantum, the same attributes of, of the particles that operate in the quantum micro dimension operate in this quantum macro dimension. They are both uh, quantized. Okay, so that means if we're going to contemplate reality, we are going to contemplate the fact that reality is potency, not actuality. It's not concrete. And it is a potency that responds to consciousness and is itself consciousness. That's the key point here. It is consciousness itself contemplating itself. There is no other. And, and this is what was discovered. Now along with that, Another, a number of other attributes. I'll, I'll mention a few. Okay, so what they discovered as they went along and different physicists began doing more refined experiments, uh, developments like Bell's theorem occurred, which proved that uh, two particles, apparent particles, that get coordinated with one another in terms of their spin. Particles are spinning, They're, they have a rotation, and those spins can be in different directions, up or down or sideways, but we'll say that they, the two particles that get oriented toward the same spin, let's say, or it could be the opposite spin, if you separate them by as far as you want, send one to another galaxy, and you change the spin of one, you will instantaneously change the spin of the other, okay? They've done this with particles hundreds of miles apart, separated by these, uh, these huge uh, machines that they have built uh, in order to, to prove this. Uh, and they've done the experiments underground to make sure there's no interference from uh, particles in the atmosphere, et cetera, and they do these things in vacuums. So what they've discovered is that there is instantaneous communication between two particles if they have been in resonance at some point then no matter how far apart you send them or for how long, they will forever remain in resonance. Uh, and so there, there is non-locality as well as entanglement. They are forever entangled until at least the, uh, the, uh, the wave function is collapsed. The collapse of the wave function is what happens when a consciousness of a 
physicist wants to measure this potency and then it agrees to become a, a particle, a concrete apparently existing entity. Then the possibilities which are infinite collapse into one uh, apparent reality, right? Okay, so uh, the, 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 the fact of non-local entanglement means that they are communicating with one another faster than the speed of light, okay? Because they can be uh, at, at literally almost infinite distances and, and instantaneously communicate, not through some electromagnetic wave going from one particle to the other and say, hey, I changed my spin, you better change. No, it doesn't happen like that. It's an instantaneous resonance between the two. So Einstein was wrong about the speed of light being the speed limit for anything in the universe because the communication of information is not limited by that. It's literally instantaneous. So this together with the work of Nikola Tesla who discovered again that not only was Einstein wrong about the speed limit but he was wrong about the ether, at least in his original uh, uh, theory of special and general relativity, he uh, declared that there was no need for a luminiferous ether, which had been the basic understanding of what fills space, interstellar space. Uh, and, uh, and the idea was that light was a wave through the ether. Otherwise, you know, what's waving? When, when you are in a, a pool and you uh, splash around, you'll create waves of water, but the waves are water. Uh, they are not simply waves of, of something that has no medium. The medium itself is, is the perturbation that, uh, that we call waves, but there are no waves outside of water. And in the same way, it was thought, how could there be any light waves if there wasn't a luminiferous ether? And it's the ether that's lighting up and the perturbation of the ether is what's causing the apparent movement of a light wave at the speed of light, but it's actually not, nothing is moving at all except the apparent waveform of the ether itself. In the same way that if you see an ocean wave, the water is not moving. The water goes up here and then it'll go up here and down, but it's the, this, the molecules of water here don't end up here and then there and there. They stay where they are. The wave moves, but the water doesn't, you see? It's a very important uh, distinction. Well, as a result of that mistake uh, and the removal of the ether, they could no longer figure out really what light was. And so it took a long time for that correction to be made. Einstein himself eventually recognized that, that the ether is a reality, but it was too late in terms of the the way that it was presented to the public as if it, it had been disproven. I won't go into the Michelson-Morley experiment and all of that which seemed to disprove it, but uh, you can read a number of books now that have reinstated the ether as a necessity. But what is the ether? Again, Max Planck discovered that space is not empty and that the smallest unit of length or of time, which is called the Planck length now, very, very tiny, 10 to the minus 34th uh, 
a centimeter or something like that, but very, 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 the smallest possible unit, uh, that the ether is actually made up of pixels that are the, that distance away from each other. So we're living in a pixelated holographic simulation, you could say. And all of this that we are seemingly living in, this apparent world, is kept with its uh, apparent forms as a result of the collapse of the wave function because the consciousnesses, we, us, that inhabit it, want to have consistency and see everybody as if they don't change over time. And so as much as possible that there is a, a consistent change, even though it, it does happen, there is entropy and, and, uh, and change happens as a result of various uh, conflicting forces within the, uh, uh, the levels of consciousness that are operant. But nonetheless, we are living in a, a hologram. And this holographic uh, concept of the universe, I think, is now the, the dominant accepted uh, theory. And there is a tremendous amount of documented evidence behind it. Not that it's an artificial holographic uh, simulation created by aliens or something like that, which is popular on the internet, but that what we're dealing with is mind. We're, we're dealing with mind that can potentially light up and present a, an apparent form out of this formless potency that the entire universe is in every uh, every inch or plank length of space, there is the potency for uh, the lighting up of uh, a potential presence into an actual one. And at any moment, and here we're getting into the Schrodinger's cat understanding, at any moment, uh, because all of this is consciousness and your consciousness is divided, uh, the, an, an unknowable uh, situation, for example, for, for Schrodinger in this thought experiment, a cat that was inside a sealed box that because of uh, the movement of a, an atomic uh, uh, gun that might at any moment shoot out a, a, a radiation uh, electron that would uh, that would break open a seal that would put poison into the box, the cat would either be dead or alive. And it was unknowable whether it was one or the other. And, uh, and Schrodinger was famous for uh, showing, well, it, we have to account for the fact that if we haven't measured it, we cannot say that the cat is either alive or dead until the measurement is actually made. And it's whether it's alive or dead is going to depend on the intention of the observer. Uh, now, whether the cat itself might change the, the situation because it might want to be alive even if the outside observer wants it dead was something that Schrodinger never dealt with. But nowadays they would say that the cat also is an intelligent observer. And so the situation of this thought experiment uh, would need to be altered somewhat if you wanted to, to not have an internally present uh, consciousness affecting the wave function. But in a sense, that's the situation for all of us. You see, we are within the hologram 
identified with our bodies and with the, uh, the thought forms that create intentions, desires, and fears that will be reflected in what uh, arises within the phenomenal plane. And it will arise in accord with the collective uh, uh, force fields of intentionality from a particular group. And if there is a lot of conflict of some people wanting one thing to happen and other people wanting another, then that disharmony is going to uh, be reflected and disseminated and create some form of anxiety within the consciousnesses in which there will be an inherent power struggle as to which intention will become dominant. But if there is an intention that is harmonious, that is accepted and uh, ratified by all the consciousnesses in a given space, and there is a resonance, let's say we all want to be in a state of peace right now. Nobody really wants to be anxious. No one wants to be in conflict. No one wants to uh, think of themselves as separate from God. No one wants to, uh, to be in any kind of conflict internally or externally. If we are all in that state right now, then we are going to resonate at the vibrational frequency of, of that level of reality and produce a very harmonious energy field in which anyone who enters that energy field is suddenly going to feel that way, even if they felt very different a moment before and might have been angry at something that happened, and then they come into this energy field and, why? Oh, actually, I feel good, you know? I forgot what I was angry at, and I'm suddenly in harmony and, and enjoying the company of all these beautiful avatars of the God Self. So once one is in that kind of a harmonious resonance, because that would be the most coherent way of harmonizing all of the consciousnesses at the highest possible level of reflection of the potentials of your understanding of who and what you are. The, the quantum wave function not only is determinative of the objective world of how that will appear to you, but it's determinative of your subjective consciousness as well. Okay? So there's a feedback loop between the objective and the subjective. And if you're in a space in which you're receiving the energies of coherent divine love, your, your own internal vibrational field is going to uh, be able to accommodate and resonate with that level of consciousness, even though there might be some resistance and some struggle against it. But in an energy field in which that was the, the clear, uh, unconflicted level of consciousness in which we were all saturated and, uh, and saturating one another, then that becomes the basis of all of the events that would arise within that space and derive from that space. Okay, so uh, this is uh, uh, the, why it, it's so important then for us to understand that quantum physics teaches that the entire universe is one single wave function, ultimately. That, that cosmic wave function occurs within the quantum unified field. Now, the quantum unified field, therefore, is prior to an arising of a wave function. We, we would have to say that it is the ether in itself before any 
forms appear in it. There's no such thing as, as uh, planets or galaxies or any of that. But within that, that, uh, that wave function that is or at least becomes the cosmos and can wink out and no longer appear as a cosmos, then there are subsets of that one wave function that will operate at more and more localized levels and eventually become what are apparently separate individual human beings, but we all derive our consciousness from the one wave function, which derives its nature and its potencies from the quantum unified field itself. That's prior to, uh, to, to anything arising prior to differentiation, prior to there being any objects, prior to time, even prior to space. So we are within that, that reality in which what had been potential at, it, at the highest level has gradually concretized itself and produced what is seemingly a world in which the wave function that you really are believes itself to be a particle. That's really what the ego is. And how did the ego come to be? How did you lose your status as a wave function and become an apparent particle who feels like you now can't get out of that situation? I would call it an evolutionary development. It is the evolution of the child from angel to brat. <laughs> Every child is born as an angel, and at some point, the parents will start calling it a brat. Now, for some uh, babies, the angel status lasts only a very short time. For others, it can last several years, okay? Uh, the longer the angel status lasts, the more that that angel status will uh, be part of, a, uh, of the complex of the ego's identity, even after it gets nominated as a brat. There will still be some angelic traces left. But wait a minute, wasn't I your angel? You adored me, I know it, you know. Did you forget who I am? You know, why am I suddenly just a brat? You know? Okay, well... But it may be that you weren't wanted at all from the get-go. A total accident, the condom broke, you weren't supposed to be there, uh, the abortion didn't work, whatever, and, uh, and uh, you were a brat from day one, and worse than a brat. I wish you would never have been born, you ruined my life, and now I can't uh, do what I wanted to do with my life. That kind of situation, all too common, unfortunately. And so there's very little of the angelic trace left, and, uh, and the person is an unworthy, toxic brat who should never have been born and, and would do the world a favor by committing suicide, okay? There's all too many people walking around with that kind of an ego identity. I hope you aren't one of those, but they're all too common. And uh, the world uh, has uh, not uh, treated its uh, children very well for the last hundred or so years, especially in the West, uh, because of this soulless uh, identity form and the capitalist system, making parents way too busy to be able to perform their function properly. 
and they themselves were turned into brats too soon, and so all they could do is project the brattiness out on the next generation. They didn't have an angelic reservoir of love left to be able to offer. But it's better to be a brat than not be anything at all. Okay? So uh, when you've been named a brat and, uh, or whatever else goes along with that, uh, by a family system that offered you the only kind of love you ever knew, even though it may have been hatred and anger and, uh, and rejection, but you know, they let you live, they fed you, they you know, uh, allowed you to, uh, to reach adulthood. So uh, you became loyal to that system and therefore, just as the particle acquiesces in, in, in being what the physicist wants it to be, even though it's really a wave function, not even a wave, a wave function, a potency, even the same way that's what you are, but because the physicists, your parents, wanted to uh, see you as a brat, uh, you became that. And then, and then you actually had to believe it. You didn't just become it for them, which was the original uh, intention, but you actually had to become it for yourself so that you could feel congruent. Uh, otherwise, there would be too much uh, cognitive dissonance, to, to use the technical term. So, okay, so now you have adopted a very negative identity about yourself, limited to the body, limited to this little circle of, of family relationships that define you and the signifiers of the family that get added on through the time period that you're with them. So you're indoctrinated into a particular religion, a regional identity that believes certain things uh, are true about your re region of the world that makes it special and you have to keep those things up. You have to support the local football team and the local religion that you are indoctrinated into and the, probably the political party that the parents recommend and et cetera, et cetera. So your entire paradigm, your frame of reference gets organized in accord with what you receive from the, uh, the family system and the cultural system and uh, uh, eventually the, the whole uh, social system with all of its ramifications, including what you learn from science, etc. Okay, so now you've got a frame of reference that not only defines you, but gives you your values, what you should be doing with your life, which may be you know, creating another brat to carry on the same curse that you f were stuck with, or it's something else. But there is a frame of reference in which you have a comfort zone of believing you get it, even though, of course, you don't get anything. Uh, but uh, you, this is what you got. And so you don't want to let go of it because you would be starting at square zero. You wouldn't know who you are. You would just be a, a blobby wave function that had no identity and wouldn't know how to relate to anybody in the world. And, and you would uh, feel you don't really exist, even though you already feel that way deep down, but you have at least this pretense. And so the ego is gonna hold on to its loyalty to that frame of reference. Long after it's left home and is no longer actually dependent on the mother for food or the father for money or the car to go on a date or anything like that, but the, the system will sustain itself 
because of the terror of not knowing who you are and, and the anger that will come up once you realize this was all a bad joke and uh, you know, you're the victim of uh, an indoctrination that had no reality that took away your ability to connect with your true nature. So all of that creates a tremendous amount of stress and tension, anxiety, and uh, dysfunction in the society as a whole. But that increases the ego's need to hold on to an identity as everything around it is collapsing. Does this make sense so far? Can anybody relate to any of this? I hope not, but... <laughs> Uh, all too many in the world are stuck in that. And so, okay, the, the importance of quantum physics is that it gives us a way out. It makes us understand that none of that was ever true. All of that frame of reference and all the beliefs you have about the ego are limited to that particular situation that you had to survive that was probably more adverse than loving, even though you'll probably tell yourself the opposite because otherwise you wouldn't be able to tolerate uh, the situation of self-deception. So the ego tends to blame itself for why things weren't better. My parents did the best they could. It was my fault. If only I hadn't done this or that, or you know, if I had been a boy instead of a girl, or a girl instead of a boy, or I had uh, been... Uh, uh, you know, more, uh, more accepting and, you know, uh, didn't have temper tantrums when I was three or whatever. The, uh, the story that will be told always puts the blame on oneself and lets the parents off the hook in general because uh, you don't want to be rejected by them. And, uh, and so even if you end up demonizing one, you usually keep uh, uh, another one as the good object. So the, the ego then has four superego figures now installed within its mind, two of the mother and two of the father, and a, generally, a general household that has two parents. Nowadays, you often will have a single mother or something like that, and there will be a, a, a different uh, construct. But in general, everyone has a good mother and a bad mother and a good father and a bad father, okay? And, uh, of course, the bad father says, uh, you know, do as I say, not as I do, right? And, of course, you're going to do as he does, right? So uh, you're going to act uh, in accord not with the hypocritical demands of what they taught you you should do, but what they were doing behind the scenes. And the mother, again, there's a good mother, but she will easily turn into the bad mother as soon as she doesn't adore you as the angel and calls you the brat. And, and that relationship uh, of a love-hate type of nature is going to then be projected onto everybody else in your world because those are the only templates that you have for a relationship. Okay. You may have a few other modifications that you got from siblings or an extended family, but for the most part, your capacity to relate to other people is going to be limited to the relationships you had with the parents and the relationship they had with each other. So this, this limits your repertoire uh, when you go out as an adult and want to form relationships with people. The reflex is to project first the good mother onto the other, and then when they don't fulfill that fantasy, uh, and you are not their angel, but their, blat, their, their brat, then suddenly they're the bad mother, and there's a war and hatred and uh, a rejection. 
And the same thing with, uh, with the father. First, there's a, a, a kind of transmission of uh, some ideal uh, of, uh, of what can be done. But underneath that, there is, uh, you know, let's go to the uh, opium den and, and get high kind of thing. Or whatever is the, was the, the jouissance of the father. I don't know. The, the bar and grill, whatever, they, the, the World Cup, you know, it could be anything depending on the, the level of society that you were born into. But uh, all of this limits uh, what you think you want in life because you end up wanting to want the same things uh, that they wanted or, and, and uh, you want to get more of what they didn't get. And usually they demand for you to want what they didn't get so you can fulfill vicariously their lives because their lives were empty as a result of having to be your slave for all those years. So uh, everybody's mad at everybody else and uh, you have a duty to sacrifice your life to behave in a certain way that will satisfy their ideas of who you are, who you should be at any rate and how you should live. If you have broken free from all of that and have come to the understanding and, and, and you grok it that you really don't know who you are, not just because you're an idiot, <laughs> but because you aren't anybody. You are only a potential person, okay? And you don't have to become an actual person to satisfy anybody's demand or desire. This is the key point. What freedom is to a yogi, this is jivan mukti now. We're talking about real freedom. What it is is simply the decollapse of the wave function so, uh, so that you're no longer a particle, a particular ego that others can recognize and measure and say, well, you're not so good or you're not so pretty or you're not this or that. You know, they'll measure you, they'll judge you, they'll assess you. But you don't have to be that and respond in kind or uh, with the reciprocity of, oh yeah, well this is what I think of you. You can be free of any identity whatsoever and realize that no one can actually measure you because you don't exist as a particle to be measured. And you don't have to give in to showing up as if you are one for anyone else. That's not written in the Ten Commandments anywhere that thou must become the particle and give up the wave function that you are. <laughs> we have to write a new set of commandments here for, for uh, quantum uh, religion. Uh, God forbid. But in any God forbid. Well, I don't know. That's, let's not go too far here. The God is the quantum unitive field, and it may well be that we create something like that. But the point is that, that once you recognize that everything that you see out there is simply a reflection of a collapsed quantum wave, it is a projection. You don't see anyone else as they really are because you don't see yourself as you really are. And until you know who you are, you can't see anyone else because of this filter of the ego paradigm, the frame of reference of the ego, which is gonna lock everybody in to one of these different possibilities uh, of otherness that you gained uh, in your lifespan up until the present that will limit those possibilities 
for what fits in, what hooks in, in the same way that, uh, that two um, elements uh, can hook together if there's a, uh, a vacant uh, uh, electron shell. You know, uh, like hydrogen and oxygen can hook together and some, there you got water. And the water has an entirely different form than either oxygen or hydrogen. Suddenly you have something new emerging in the world. And now if you are free of your preconceptions as to who you are, and therefore of what you want and how you see other people as fitting into that, if you are free of that, suddenly there are electron shells that are open, they're not filled, and there can be a new meeting of beings who are both free from any preconceptions of who they are or who the other is, and now extraordinary creative intelligence can arise as the resonance between the two can go up to the highest possible vibrational frequency with nothing to limit it, okay? So this is where the freedom comes in of being able to live at the level of God consciousness and not have to keep coming back down in order to serve the uh, desires of some other that you got entangled with years ago and, and never broke free of that entanglement. So everything that happens at the quantum level is happening at the psychological level of the ego. That's the basic you know, bottom line. Uh, that's the meaning of fractality in the universe. The same principles are gonna work at every level from subatomic to intergalactic. And, and we are both the product of those principles and laws of nature, but we're also the creators of them and free to change them and lift ourselves out of their jurisdiction. So freedom is the nature of the universe, not law. Law gets put in to serve freedom in order to be able to create beautiful forms. Once we have lost access to the beauty of what we are, however, then the forms that we see in the world are reflected with more and more degrees of ugliness and antagonism and difference and uh, alienation. And they create different kinds of melodramatic relationships that usually will produce suffering. Because the world is a mirage, it's not real. But the way that that mirage comes to appear will depend on the preconceptions you project upon it. It has no reality outside of those projections because everything is consciousness. Okay, so I'm winding down my rant now and I want to come down to the bottom line. If we want to be free of the ego and its patterns of suffering, all we have to do is stop producing the, the measurement the observation of the ego through the continuation of observing its thought patterns, right? That's how the ego remains in place, as a seemingly active agent that controls our destiny. It stays in place because it is simply made up of signifiers that are thoughts in the mind that get produced automatically once the ego image is installed. All the things your parents called you will come in your mind. I'm a brat, I really should not be doing this, and et cetera, et cetera. The same kinds of thoughts that you're having were the ones installed in you with slight modifications years ago. And they have remained there because they are constantly being observed by the superegos. 
And as long as they are observed within the mind, they're going to continue to function as the ego particle radiation would have it. So if you eliminate the superegos by recognizing they are not real, they are fantasies, and you stop producing thoughts, even for a very limited amount of time, and you remain in silence, you will be free of the ego's frame of reference, and you will be able to discover who you really are. And what you will discover is so magical, so miraculous, so inconceivable, that not even quantum physics can, can go near it. But we're talking about realizing that you are the source of everything that seems to exist. And it's your creative intelligence, your love, your uh, approach to uh, the radiance of, of beauty, of light, of joy into the world that determines how the world will appear. And so once you understand that, you realize that you have not only the power, but a responsibility to uplift the world simply through the cutting uh, and, the, and the, uh, the decollapsing of whatever wave functions have held you in bondage. And your freeing of yourself from the wave functions, because they are projected out, actually has a huge impact on freeing everyone else from theirs. Because we are all entangled. We are all interconnected as a single consciousness. Therefore, when the thread unravels with anyone, it starts to unravel with everyone whether those people are here or a thousand miles away on the other side of the earth or wherever they are in the cosmos because all consciousnesses are connected and tangled and ultimately a unified field. So once you understand that quantum physics is consciousness and what physics has discovered is true of you psychologically, you are able to free yourself from all of the bondages that your mind tells you you can't get rid of because the mind doesn't know anything. It's just repeating automatically what it learned from that original frame of reference. It's not present. The thoughts in your mind are not your thoughts. You can watch them. They come up automatically, even when you don't want them to, right? That's why people say, I can't meditate. I can't stop thinking. No, not true. You're not thinking in the first place. But you're identified with those thoughts in the mind disidentify and the thoughts will stop coming pretty soon. They will be extinguished. You keep them alive because you think they're your thoughts. When you realize they're not, they have no way to, to keep on coming because there's nobody who wants them anymore. And once they stop coming, then what is there? Emptiness. This is what the Buddhists said. But emptiness of what? Emptiness of illusion because all of the illusion disappears, but there is at the same time as the emptiness of the illusion is recognized for what it is, the fullness of the creative power that created the illusion in the first place is revealed. That is what you want to realize, because that's what you are. And if you want to use the word God for that, feel free. You can use the word Buddha nature, or the Tao, or Brahman, or Allah, or any other term you want. But this is the ultimate reality, and you are it right now. And there's no reason to wait to discover this. And even if your ego resists it, 
it doesn't matter one bit because the ego isn't real. So you can let the ego say, no, no, I can't do it, I'm too weak, I don't get it, this is too intense, too abstract, too whatever. But your real self is already grokking this at this moment. Sorry, your, your ego is going to lose this one because it has nothing to offer except suffering. And the real self is emerging as a blissful presence. Who's going to win this? You're not for very long going to choose the ego. I'll put money on it. <laughs> I'll put more than money on it. But the point is, this is an inherent necessity of the cosmic process, that that which had been concealed will be revealed despite all the resistances of the ego that wants to keep it in the closet. It ain't going to happen. Freedom is coming. Democracy is coming. Right? So it's all going to happen, and... It doesn't even matter how long it takes for you as an apparent ego to grok that it's happening. It's happening regardless of that because time is an illusion. Once you know that, you're, you're going to stop investing so much in the ego loyalty because it's a losing battle. And once you open to feeling what is within you when you meditate, even with just a few moments of silence, you, you won't want to go back to the chatter of the ego mind that is just running away from bliss. I guarantee it. So I think by the end of this weekend, you will all realize you are the blissful manifestations of the one luminous reality. Let's meditate for a few minutes. Mm -hmm.